in prayer once again, seeking uh, wisdom and discernment as we hear uh, the message this morning. Father, here we are again. We just ask that you will grant us wisdom um, this morning as we hear uh, your word spoken today. May your spirits uh, guide us, discern for us, uh, speak to us each uh, to where we are at, Father. And may we as a body uh, grow together um, to look more like your son, Jesus Christ, and to be sanctified and transformed into his image all the more. Help us to submit ourselves to the teaching this morning. Um, and may you be glorified through all this. We ask this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week, uh, we covered the final moments of Saul's and Samuel's relationship, uh, the moments that led to their faithful split rooted in Saul's desire to serve himself first and God second. Um, and I do appreciate the emails um, and the conversations that follow from that. That's always good and healthy. Um, and I would encourage that we continue uh, to do uh, to do that as we go forward. Today, we're going to be 1 Samuel 16, um, and it's an interesting message because, you know, 1 Samuel 16, um, not qu- quite a whole lot there. Um, normally, I would like to have more there, but 17, which we're going to cover next week, that's a big chapter, all right? So that's David and Goliath, and there's a lot there, and I don't want to add anything more to that because, again, there's going to be a lot to chew on, a lot to uh, tackle, um, things to wrestle with um, in 17. So here we got 16. It's just kind of in the middle between these two events. Um, it's still important, um, so we're going to go over it. And as we go over it, there's going to be a couple of threads that after we read through the passage that I want to pull on. Um, and as we pull those threads, uh, we'll see how they come um, out through the Old and the New Testament. Um, in this chapter, we're going to discover the man whom God is handing Saul's kingdom over to. Uh, a man who, as God stated in uh, 1 Samuel thirteen fourteen, is after God's heart and not his own. A man who Samuel said in, ch- in last week's chapter in verse 28 is better than Saul. Um, a man who at this point of the story is actually more of a boy than he is a man. And he is one of the most well-known, most popular figures of history. And that is, of course, David. If you ever wanted to know how God operates, we see that in this chapter. Uh, We find out who he finds to be acceptable to him. We find out who he uses and to what end does he use his people. We get his MO, his modus operandi. So we have a snapshot of that here in chapter 16. The passage will be uh, on the screen for us. Um, If you don't have a Bible, if you like a Bible, we got several stacks of them uh, back there. So you can grab one of those um, if you would like to follow along instead of on the screen. So again, we're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, there'll be a few things that I'll, I'll speak about as we read it, um, and then we'll dive in. So 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. And I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. See, Samuel, he's, God has told him, take what you need to anoint a person for a king. And if you remember from last week, Samuel and Saul, they didn't end on good terms. It left with Samuel hacking to pieces uh, the king that Saul should have done. And it also left with Samuel telling Saul, hey, you're not going to be king for much longer. God's going to replace you. And now God's telling Samuel, hey, go about the country where Saul has many spies to anoint somebody for a king. So likewise, Samuel's like, if Saul finds out, 
He's going to kill me. And there's a good chance he is going to do so. So the Lord gives him an idea. He says, and the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, which is what he's doing, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. So that's about a 10-mile journey from Ramah, which is uh, Samuel's hometown. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? Now the elders are kind of like in the same boat as Samuel. They, they, they've heard what Samuel has done, right? Samuel has hacked Agag to pieces. So now perhaps they're wondering, are we following under the same judgment? Or perhaps they're wondering, will Saul think that Bethlehem is in cahoots with Samuel and replacing him as king? And so they ask him, and Samuel says, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his statue, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abedinab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Now ruddy can mean that he was reddish, he had red hair, or it could also just mean he was fair skin. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing. A man of failure, a man of war. Now, notice they're calling David, who is really young, a man of war. But yet, at this point, he hasn't been to war. Now, the, he could be speaking to the reputation of the family. Jesse's family is, is known. They're influential. Remember, uh, Jesse is the grandson of Ruth, Boaz and Ruth, uh, which you read about in the book of Ruth, um, which is right after it occurs in the period of Judges. Uh, so it could just be an expression of that, that he is a man of a, a, he belongs to a family with this reputation. He's prudent in speech and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor-bearer, 
And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. <laughs> so here we have God's standard. His, he looks at the heart. In verse 7, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, on the height, or his statue, because I have rejected him. He's talking about the firstborn of Jesse's. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The eyes of God are not the same as our eyes. He is not impressed with what you and I are typically impressed. He does not get seduced or persuaded by the physical as we often are tempted to do. Psalm 147 Verse 10 and 11 says, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. The, the strength, the, the, the physicality of a person does not dictate their favor or their, their um, uh, blessing before God. Everything is, is equal in that regard before God. The opinions of the world, your physical health and well-being, uh, the opinions of society does not matter to God ultimately. Your situation, your socioeconomic background, the color of your skin, the degree that's hanging on your wall or the lack of degrees that's hanging on the wall does not give you any favor before God. What God ultimately cares about is your heart, your motives, your will, what are you doing? What you are desiring to do? That's what God cares about. He's not concerned about whether or not the world approves of you or whether the world thinks you would be effective or not. He cares about your heart. He already knows you're not perfect. He already knows we all deserve damnation. Yet, here we are, and here is God speaking to us through his word. There's nothing that you and I can do or earn in this world that can be that would impress God to make him go, oh, that one I'm impressed with. Beyond us fearing him. That is whom the Lord looks for. That's whom he sends his spirit to and fro to the ends of the earth. Is the one who fears him, who trembles before his word. Now our actions ultimately reflect what is on the inside. And one day God will judge us because of those actions. But right now, if we come to him with a humble, repentant heart, he will listen, and he will help us live. He will help us to do the things that please him. Second, God is all-knowing, and he's able to see the motives of our hearts. This is something that Solomon in 1 Kings eight thirty nine, in the midst of his prayer to God um, for Israel, acknowledges of God. It says, here in heaven, this is uh, Solomon speaking to God, here in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know, according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children and mankind. All of our ways, every single one, not one sneaks past God. He knows them. He knows the motive. You cannot hide that from him. You might be able to hide it, hide it from me, hide it from the elders, hide it from your family, hide it from your brothers and sisters of Christ, but you can't hide it <coughs> from God. And Solomon learned this from his father David, who told him this in 1 Chronicles 28.9. You, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him 
with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off. Saul did not seek God. That was clear as, as, as we went over his life. He never, he only sought God when Samuel told him to, and even then he did a poor job of it. His motives were not right with God, and God searches all the hearts. It's probably why he chose Saul to begin with as a judgment on Israel, recognizing, knowing the heart of Saul, that well, he's going to be a judgment. He's, he's, gonna, he's not going to be a good king. And this is why he chooses David, because he knows the motives of David's heart. Even when he's a young boy, he knows the heart. He knows every plan, every desire that is in David's heart. And if we do forsake him, he will cast us off forever. And that's for all of eternity. In Psalm 7, 9, the psalmist writes, Let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. Righteousness is found by God in the minds and hearts of his children. Ultimately, not in their works. Again, their works will be fruits of the righteous tree, absolutely, but you can fake those works. Ultimately, God doesn't just strictly look at those works. He looks at our hearts and minds, and he tests the hearts and minds to see if there's righteousness there. The tares, the goats, the wolves and sheep's clothing that we read about in the Gospels, God knows who they are, though you and I, we may struggle to because of their works. But God knows their hearts. They can't hide from him, and he will judge them accordingly. In Acts one twenty four, when the apostles are looking to find a person to fill the slot that Judas left empty upon his suicide and his betrayal of Christ, uh, they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen. And so the qualification for that, uh, along with just being with them since the beginning, was their hearts. God knew their heart. And whoever had the heart that God, God desired the most to be in his service was the one. In learning from the life of Saul, we ought to know by now that a heart that is approved by God is one that desires the heart of God, one who puts God first, not himself first, especially after last week in 15 when Saul is building a monument to himself before he even fulfilled the command that God gave him to do. This is a heart that desires essentially to be replaced. It's almost like a heart that says, I don't deserve to live. I need to die. Give me a new one. And to be made anew. This is what David in Psalm 51, after he commits adultery with Bathsheba, which we'll get to sooner or later, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, kills her husband so he can try to get away with it, that Nathan the prophet confronts him with it. Um, and then when he's confronted with his sin and he seeks to repent, he writes Psalm 51. And if you want a good psalm on what a, a heart after God looks like, Psalm 51 is it. It's, it's like a heart that is... Uh, completely exposed uh, before God. It's a psalm that the martyrs of the Reformation often would recite out loud as they were being led away uh, to the stake to be burned. It was Psalm 51, one of repentance. But Psalm 51, verse 10, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Because the heart that's in within us is deceitful. It's forever wicked. We cannot trust it. It cannot do us any good, so we need God's heart. We need a new heart. So a person who's, who's after God's heart 
desires ultimately his heart, a new heart to be created. We desire to be born again. If the motives of our heart are not in alignment with the motives of God, then we do not know him ultimately, nor will we be accepted by him regardless of what we do or even what we proclaim. When we, when we talk about Romans 10, 9, when, it says, when Paul says, hey, when you profess with your lips and believe in your heart, you're saved, we have to understand the context of that. Paul's writing to Roman citizens, and if you profess with your lips that Christ is Lord as a Roman citizen, you're committing treason, which can get you killed, and some were killed for that profession. Here in America, you can profess all you want that Jesus Christ is Lord and he not be your Lord. There's no cost there. So we must be careful not to think, well, they professed it with their lips. Per Romans 10.9, they're saved. Well, you got to understand the context that Paul's writing to. He knows that they know the cost of professing that with their lips. Americans, not so much. So we have to be careful of that. Jesus, in Matthew 7.21-23, puts all that to rest as well. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, everyone who professes me with their lips, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a dire warning to anyone who thinks they can fake it till you make it or use the church for their own gain. At the same time, as much as it's a warning, it's comforting to those of us who do know him, who do chase after his heart, and who do his Father's will. For while you and I are sinful, and and we don't do nearly enough, and often we feel that burden of, I don't feel like I'm doing enough for the kingdom. I don't feel like I'm doing enough for God. We are reminded that it's not our works, ultimately, that get us into the kingdom. That's not what God is looking at. It's who we trust. It's, it's, it's our hearts. It's who we know. It's to do the Father's will, which ultimately, doing the Father's will, yes, there are works that are born out of that, but to do the Father's will is to trust and follow Jesus Christ. That is ultimately the will of the Father. It's not to pay lip service or to seek selfish gain at one's expense, especially Christ's expense. And when we do his father's will, that's a heart that God approves. It's a heart that desires God's heart. So David is chosen because of the motives of his heart. But notice this as well. In verse 11, where is David while Samuel is looking for the one chosen by God? It says in verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. David's busy. He's doing what shepherds do. He's with the sheep. And this is common in in scripture when God calls people to do his work. See, David wasn't laying about, just relaxing, waiting for his big moment to arrive. He was doing the task that was set before him providentially by God. And when we look at the rest of scripture, we see this played out with just about everyone that God calls to him. Think of Moses when God called him in Exodus 3, verse 1 and 2. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So Moses, when he gets called by God, he's working. 
as a shepherd. He, he, he's, doing, he's just doing whatever work that he found himself to be doing. Or think of Gideon in Judges 6, 11, 12. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So Gideon, not a shepherd here, but he's working. He, he, he's beating out the wheat in the winepress. He's doing whatever the Lord had put before him at the time. Elisha in 1 Kings 19.19. 19. So he departed, that's Elijah, from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. I keep wanting to say Snapchat when I see that name. It's, uh, it's not that far off. Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. So when Elisha was called into service, what was he doing? He was working. He was staying busy. And then when we think of Nehemiah, he was a cupbearer for the king. When, when he was called, when he was moved to go to Jerusalem, Amos, a prophet, was a shepherd who was tending flocks when the word of God came to him. The disciples, they were fishing. And they continued to fish even after God called them, uh, after Jesus called them to work for them. Matthew was collecting taxes when Jesus called him. And not one of these examples do we see anyone sitting on the couch, chilling, waiting for the Lord to come to them. They're all busy. If you want to be used by God, get busy. Stay busy. Don't wait for God to come to you thinking, well, I got to wait for God's call. God has, you're breathing. You have a purpose. Whatever God puts before you providentially by his sovereign will, do it. Whatever the task is. Whether it's working at McDonald's, picking up trash on the sidewalk, or whatever it may be, get busy. And don't hold out thinking that you deserve better or that you can demand from God a better task. Who are you to demand that? Just go to work. God didn't call any of these people, and and these people that he's called, none of them were like, oh, it's about time. I've been waiting for this. No, actually, most of them were like, I don't want to be called. Most of them were hesitant to be called. Most of them didn't actually want to go into the service. The disciples, initially at first, were the only ones that showed any kind of like eagerness to respond to God's calling. And then later on, they kind of rustled over with you know, the cost that it was going to cost them. Nehemiah, he only responded, but that was more like in remorse. You know, He, he wept over the fact of the situation existed. So don't hold out. God is going to use you wherever you are. David was the youngest of the eight, tending to sheep when the call that would change his life would happen. God will guide your steps. Psalm 37, 23, 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he, that's the man, delights in his way, God's way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. So when the man, when you and I, man or woman, desire the heart of God, we delight in his way, that's desiring, we're chasing after his heart, God will establish our steps before us. He will guide us to wherever he wants us to be, and we need to trust that. And though we fall along the way, meaning we're not perfect, you're going to mess up, you, you might step off the path here and there, you might turn left or right occasionally, though that might happen, He will not forsake us. He will uphold us and he will keep us on that path. Proverbs 3, 5, 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight, or he will make straight your paths. To follow the Lord with all your heart requires trust. And oftentimes, what you think you should do is not what you should do. Sometimes when God calls you to somewhere, you're going to be like, well, that doesn't make sense. But you know God's calling you. If God's calling you, it doesn't need to make sense. Especially if other brothers and sisters in Christ are praying for you and they affirm the call in your life. Now, there is some wisdom there. If everyone is saying, no, don't do it, God's probably speaking to the body to say, hey, don't do it. All right, we've got to make sure we're not, we don't get deceived by our own ambitions. You aren't trusting God if you're not following God. When you chase after his heart, you trust him. You are willing to follow him. You are willing to, you're like the armor bearer of Jonathan who says, I'm with your heart. The heart that's inside of you, I am with you. So whatever you do, do, even if it costs my life. That's what it looks like for those of us who chase after God. You're not following God. You're not trusting in him if you're always on the couch. You're not going to find God on the couch. You're not going to find him if you're always seeking to be comfortable. And I know that's hard for us. I mean, boy, we are, we are a comfortable society here in America. In all of history, I don't know of a nation that has ever been more comfortable in regards to the general public, the comforts that we have. With, I mean, living in the North in the 21st century isn't really living in the North like it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago. The cold, the heat, the humidity, wherever you live, I mean, it just doesn't bother us. It's not that big of a deal. We have, the comforts are incredible. Being able to turn something on, to turn off our minds at any time, to watch whatever we want, whenever we want, on our phones is incredible. But at the same time, it can be a curse. You're not following, you're not trusting in God if you see a need that you are capable of meeting and you don't meet it. Now, this doesn't mean that you say yes to everything. We've got to be careful here. There are many needs in the church. There are a lot of needs, but that doesn't mean that you serve all of those needs. Some of you serve in many capacities already. That doesn't mean that just because you can meet another need, you pick it up. Sometimes there's a need there, but it's not meant for you to fill. It's for everyone else who isn't meeting needs. At the same time, if you are filling many roles, Seek others out to fill that spot that you're currently filling. Try, that's, that's discipleship. Have them step in. And when they step in, that can free you up to either rest, which is good. We need seasons of rest, just like the land needs rest from harvesting and, and reaping. We need rest too. And, and when that frees you up, maybe you can pursue that other need that you know you can meet. It creates space for your time and your energy. Maybe space for your family that has been taken away from them. Sometimes God will place another need in your life to get you to let go of the current need that you are meeting. You just have to trust and follow him. He will guide your steps. He will providentially put you where he wants you to be for your good, for your edification, for your sanctification, and for his glory. So if you see a need, meet it. But again, he can't guide your steps if you're sitting on the couch. Your feet might be moving, but you're not taking steps. Live your life to glorify God in all you do, and unlike Saul, make him a priority of your life. Seek first the kingdom, wherever that takes you, and God will be with you. He will use you. A person who does this is like David, who one day was tending sheep, and that very day he's anointed to be the next king of Israel, and he's still just a boy. 
And next week we're going to read about a massive military accomplish that he, accomplishment that he does because of his faith. This, this faith, this, this chasing after God's heart is what led Jesus to the cross. It's what led the apostles to martyrdom um, and John to exile. It's what has led countless faithful brothers and sisters in Christ throughout history and even today to bring the word of God to the lost throughout the world while costing many of them their lives and many more their relationships with their family, over distance, time, whatever it may be. When you serve, if, if right now you, have, you don't know where to serve, just pick the first need that you're aware of and serve there. Nursery, children's ministry, you might not think that it's for you. Okay, that's fine. You can still serve there. It's not a vocation. It's, it's, it's an opportunity for you to bless others and for you to be blessed by God in that. You might be surprised at how God works in your heart when you deal with children. I, I get it. It can be frustrating, right? It's hard. And some of you, perhaps, if you have temper problems, might not be necessarily should serve there. We got to use some wisdom there. But just start, start moving your feet. You'll be surprised where God will take you. You meet one need, next thing you know, you find out of another need, and then you move to that need, and before you know it, you might be in Cambodia or somewhere else, or maybe starting your own church here in the Cooley region. You just, you don't know how God is going to fuel the fire in your life if you follow him and you trust him. Now, perhaps you have struggled to draw near to God's heart. Perhaps you felt your relationship with Christ has grown cold and you desire to reignite it, so to speak. And you try by reading God's word, right? You're, you're faithful to that Bible plan that you're on. You read that word, you even read the devotion, you do the praying, but you're in a rut. Well, what do you do? Well, think of David here. A good shepherd, a man after God's heart, where was he when God chose him? With sheep. Jesus, like David, is a good shepherd as well. In fact, he is the good shepherd. If you want to draw closer to Jesus, you must spend time with him. And to do so means spending time with the sheep. And when you spend time with the sheep, guess what you're doing? You're meeting needs. You really want to spend time with sheep? Meet the needs of the sheep. And you will find yourself spending plenty of time with the sheep and the sheep coming to you when they have needs. So you need to spend time with your brothers and sisters in Christ. We must not think that our relationship with Christ is meant strictly to remain in the study of his word. We must understand that the study of his word is ultimately what helps us reap the harvest of this fellowship that you and I are experiencing right now. And in doing so, that leads to a fuller, richer relationship with Christ. The word of God and the body of Christ, they're not meant to be known, in, I mean, excuse me, they are meant to be known and experienced together, not in isolation from each other. You can't just study his word and think you're being a faithful Christian and never be part of the body, never meet the needs of the body, nor can you think you can be part of the body effectively and not know his word. You can't obey the word of God without the body, and you can't live rightly in the body without the word of God. Think of Ephesians 4, 15, 16. Paul writes, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, in other words, when, when the needs are being met by the body, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Even here, after David is anointed, 
right? He gets called to Jesse's house. They have the sacrifice. Samuel anoints David before him. And David probably knows what's going on. Some of the others probably know what's going on. David, even though he's anointed to be the next king, he doesn't sit around. He stays busy. He's, he's not dictating or demanding what to do. He stays busy. He doesn't wait for the crown to arrive on his head. He doesn't even plan how he's going to get the crown from Saul. He just stays faithful. And in doing so, he is a blessing. He's a blessing even to the one who refused God and the one who is currently under judgment from God, Saul. In verse 14, we hear of God sending a spirit to torment Saul. The spirit of God rushes into David and the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul and and God sends a spirit to torment, to judge Saul. And yet, because David's staying busy and through God's providence and working with the servants of Saul, David is put into the service of the tormented king in order to provide him relief and to really to bless him as well. The king who suffers from the torment of judgment is provided relief by a boy who has the spirit of God in him, by a boy whose heart is after God's heart. And God does this by guiding and directing the steps of David. Ultimately, in doing so, by David entering into the service of Saul because he stayed busy, he was faithful, he wasn't demanding God how he should live his life, God puts him in a position that's going to prepare him to be king. I mean, think about it. He's, he's playing before Saul. He's going to be privy to conversations that he's not supposed to share. He's going to see how a king acts and behaves, good and bad. He's going to see the, the daily ongoing. So he's going to grow in wisdom in this experience. Jesus, likewise, though being the anointed one, as David here is an anointed one, Jesus is not recognized by the world, though the world is currently under God's judgment. Though the world is currently in darkness and ultimately is tormented by its own depravity, Jesus, like David was to Saul, is the world's solution. Saul didn't know it. His servants did. The world doesn't know Jesus is the solution. They reject it, but he is. And perhaps you have been tormented, right? Whether you're saved or not, perhaps you've been tormented either by your sins, the guilt you feel, or the sorrow over the state of things. And if that's the case, seek David. Seek the son of David, Jesus Christ. Go to him. Cry out to him. Cast your worries, your anxieties upon him. Confess your sins and wrongdoings before him. And in doing so, you pray to him. Go to his word. Stay busy, go to where he is with his sheep, among his sheep, where the shepherd hangs out with his sheep, go to his people, be involved with the church, despite your flaws and shortcomings and everything else that makes you really ugly before the holiness of God and maybe even ugly before the world. And the church, what makes you belong is your faith. It's not what you've done or who you are or, or the scars that you bear. So let his work on the cross be your saving grace just as David's music was to Saul. May the work of Christ save your soul as the lyre provided soothing music for Saul. May the work of Christ encourage you and remind you of who you are and where you are heading for eternity. Let us pray. Father, thank you um, for your word this morning. Thank you for the example of David. Thank you for reminding us that you look not at what men and women will look at, but you look at what we ourselves cannot see, but your spirit can see it.
And your spirit helps us discern these things. But help us to be like David, a boy after your heart, a boy who is so young and perhaps they may know better. But he was faithful and he, and he stayed busy. He didn't demand. He just did where you did whatever you put before him. So help us be like that. Help us to model that, Father, as we look to your son, Jesus Christ, the son of David. And as we look to him, Father, may we be reminded of the work on the cross, how he has shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, how he and only he makes us worthy to come before you, that he has made a way for us to come into your presence even now and into eternity, that he is the only doorway in which we may enter into the kingdom. Help us understand what your will is in each of our lives. Help us to trust you and to follow where you want us to go. Help us to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Help us to be comfortable with the unknown, with the uncertainty. And as we do that, Father, help us cling to what is certain, what is true. That is the gospel. That is the work of your Son. That is eternal. That is secure. It's everlasting. And that all of us, Father, who call upon the name upon your Son, and we confess our sins, and we repent of them, you will be faithful, and you will usher us into the kingdom when it comes in its fullness. Father, as we go into communion this morning, as we partake of the bread and the juice, may we be reminded of this promise. May we be reminded of the work of your Son, the life that he lived, so that he would be a sacrifice that satisfied your wrath, the wrath that we should have brought, that we should have bore, but he bore in our place. And as we partake, may, we, may the taste of the cracker and the juice linger for us during this week until the next time we partake of it, so that when we do struggle, when we do stumble, though we fall, or whatever mistake we make this week, we are reminded of the good gospel, the good news. And that we are reminded that you know our hearts, you know where we are, Father that we are secure there, and that you will uphold us, you will establish our ways, though we do trip and stumble along the way, and that you will bless us with brothers and sisters in Christ who will walk with us, and that we will encourage one another, that we will build one another up in love. When we struggle to reach out to one another, may the taste of communion remind us of who we are and what we are a part of, and help us to reach out to others as well in the body especially those who are unable to be here this morning, especially those who are unable to partake of communion. Continue to grant us wisdom in that, Father. Help us to uh, perhaps find ways to minister to those who are unable to be here this morning to partake of the bread and the juice. Father, we ask all these things for your glory in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so at this time, we are going to...